Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, after visiting the land and then the whole earth, we have to address the fact that our earth is floating in a vast sea of space. Yes, today we are going to be talking about outer space, infinity and beyond, the whole reaches of the cosmos, galaxies, to the very, very edge of whatever lies beyond it, which is nothing. Or is it? Who knows? Dad, you are really into these kind of things, and you're in fact working on a book right now, so you're going to be leading the way today. But I believe that you are starting us back several hundred years before the first reliable telescope was created. Well, I think so. We're going to begin with the Bible. <laughs> uh, well, sort of. You know, this reflects back on the distinction we made between worldviews and Godviews in a previous podcast, that worldviews are ever-evolving, ever-changing, uh, sometimes in gradual ways, other times in revolutionary ways. Uh, but I think, think even more to back up to Martin Luther for a moment, uh, because there are people who would regard the very topic of discussing, uh, theologically discussing planet Earth in the context of a vast universe, according to the best thinking of today's science, who would regard the very topic as out of, out of bounds. And I, I, I would just like to make a point here by quoting uh, Luther in his commentary on the biblical book of Ecclesiastes, where he criticizes pious know-nothingism. Uh, and he specifically has in mind interpreters of Ecclesiastes, now I'm quoting, who suppose that the knowledge of nature, the study of astronomy, or of all of philosophy is being condemned here in this book, and to teach that such things are to be despised as vain and useless speculations. For the benefits of these arts, Luther continues, are many and great, as is plain to see every day. In addition, there is not only utility, but also great pleasure in them in investigating the things of nature." End quote. I really find the last thought there, great pleasure in investigating the things of nature uh, beyond the utility, the technological utility of scientific uh, discovery, the doxological uh, motivation of scientific investigation of the natural world. Uh, you and I have a friend, Johnny Palka, um, who has spent a career as a biologist and he has a, um, a, a, a what, what, what did they call that, a, a, a blog, which he does on the natural world. And his, his, his sheer pleasure in understanding the intricate webs of the biosphere. Uh, and it's just this doxological delight he takes in exploring the nature of life on planet Earth. And I think that if we take Luther seriously, not only is scientific investigation of nature useful, it has a theological or a religious, genuine religious motivation uh, to praise the Creator by understanding the creation. 
I think the whole weight of the Christian tradition is on Luther's side here, too. I think that's a theme you see all the way back in the, the early church fathers and certainly in Thomas Aquinas and on into the future. I mean, the, Luther must have been acquainted with some kind of pious know-nothingism in his time, but I feel like we've gotten more of that in the past few hundred years rather than less of it. Well, I think some of the discoveries of contemporary science are very threatening to those kinds of theologies which identify the Christian view of God with a, a passing antiquated worldview. Now, here, here you, just, you know the basic facts. Let, let's just discuss what the Milky Way is, Sarah. T- tell, tell us what the Milky Way is all about. Well, well. so apparently it's a, a streak you can see in the sky if you don't live in a city where there's too much uh, light at night that um, impedes your view of all but the brightest stars. So you probably have a better view of it than I do. You also have a very nice telescope, which I don't. But uh, the Milky Way is our galaxy. We're, I guess, in a not terribly important or central location in it. It has 400 billion stars. I don't even know. I can't fathom a number like that. Just one galaxy has 400 billion stars. And um, even our galaxy alone would take, I guess, 100,000 years to cross it, even traveling at the speed of light, which we're never going to do. So just looking at our own galaxy, it seems statistically likely that there are um, other promising planets for life. I mean, mean, that's just just life itself. But I mean, the size and like the number of galaxies there are in the universe and the whole length of the universe, it is genuinely staggering. And if you're a um, um, terraformed brain even tries to get near those statistics, it quickly shuts down because our (laughs) our earthling brains have not, not evolved to deal with numbers at that level or size at that level. Yeah, that's for sure. The, the The vastness and antiquity of the universe, according to contemporary science, is literally mind blowing. It, it's it boggles <laughs> yeah. it boggles the mind. We can't do it. But you know, one of the things that this statistical likelihood uh, on such a vast uh, uh, scope of the universe uh, of habitable exoplanet exoplanets that's what they're called planets outside of our solar system, that habitable exoplanets are out there awaiting for us to discover them. They're within eventual human reach. And, you know, now here's where it gets a little dicey for me. On the model of European colonization of the Americas and elsewhere, and I I, I think we have to raise some serious uh, questions about that model the idea that Earthlings are going to colonize uh, another planet. And we can come back to what the problems are there. But, you know, I grew up um, in the 1960s religiously watching Star Trek. That was our great uh, cultural exploration of these themes. And I know your generation was enchanted by Star Wars and probably Star Trek The Next Generation uh, you know, and that has, t- tell us, Sarah, what you think about um, science fiction as a genre in this respect. <laughs> well, you have to be very careful around Trekkies because they have very passionate feelings. So I have to admit, I don't know that I've ever seen an episode of Star Trek in my life. Nothing against it, just never crossed the transom of my consciousness. And as far as I can tell, Star Wars is much more like 
a Western or a soap opera in a sense than it is actually an exploration of 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 what genuinely other beings would be like. Um, also, uh, just between the two of them, like, and the whole idea of colonization, like the the science of both interstellar travel and but and human biology have to be totally set aside. Like, there's a scene in one of the original Star Wars movies where they the Millennium Falcon lands on an asteroid and they get out and walk around, and there's no problem <laughs> with air or gravity, but there's this giant monster living there that apparently can like feed on whatever happens to hit the asteroid every hundred thousand years. I mean, it's it's. So it's not it, – this actually space is, is pretty irrelevant to Star Wars as far as I can tell. <laughs> but it is, it is true that um, a lot of science fiction is actually like a imaginary cultural anthropology and is trying to think through these questions. And I'm, I'm not a hugely widely read sci-fi reader, but as we were talking about this, I realized that most of my ways of engaging the topic theologically have actually been inspired by some of my science fiction reading. So as we go along, that's probably what I'm going to bring in as a way of talking about these questions. Well, yeah, and in theology, that's the familiar problem of anthropomorphism, right? That, that, that we imagine the unfamiliar by step uh, by step uh, analogies with what is familiar and so extraterrestrial life has to be imagined to be like human life in x y or z ways fill in the blank according to your imagination uh, and and basically that means our wonder about extraterrestrial life uh, figures representations of alternative forms of our own life and that, so this kind of fiction tells us, in fact, more about ourselves than about actually scientifically possible extraterrestrials, I, I would think, you know. Well, well, yeah. And also the fact is that we are absolutely surrounded by life forms that are not human. We usually call them animals. <laughs> so <laughs> right. it's not like we're we're lacking for other kinds of life to engage with right here. So I think that that is the proof right there that we're interested in. Are there animals out there like us who who think like us or create culture like that uh, like us and so i mean it, it seems it, it seems to me entirely possible that there that well we can get into this about about microbial life or other kinds of life forms in other parts of the universe but the very specific kind of life that is analogous to human beings considering how we're it on our planet and that already is is pretty rare <laughs> That makes me think. I, I occasionally watch the reruns of the 1960s television show, The Twilight Zone. Um, and <laughs> no, it, I remember this as a child. It was really creepy, really spooky. And of course, little boys loved it, right? But okay. I've been as astonished at looking at the reruns, how many of them are about encounters with extraterrestrials. It must have been quite a, uh, quite a, uh, uh, possibility that dominated consciousness in the uh, 1960s uh, i don't think so oh yeah that you know that's a post that's a cultural post-war phenomenon it actually is was related to the end of world war ii and the nuclear bomb that that's mm. when all of this you know roswell new mexico and sudden like huge numbers of flying saucer sightings and all the kind of conspiracy theories that was definitely drawing on a, a cultural wow. meme, as we'd say nowadays. Yeah. That's interesting to put some of this in historical context. I want to bring up a friend of mine, Ali Pekka Vainio, 
the Finnish oh, yeah. theologian. He wrote a really good book, Cosmology and Theological Perspective, subtitle Understanding Our Place in the Universe. And right off the bat, he takes on an opinion expressed by a certain Jeff Schweitzer in the Huntington Post. And he's quoting this Schweitzer as follows. Open quote, life on another planet is completely incompatible with religious tradition. Any other conclusion is nothing but an ex post facto rationalization to preserve the myth. Close quote. <laughs> and so, yeah, well, that's what, you know, uh, evidently Schweitzer has never heard of the principle of plentitude, according to which uh, God would never waste so much uh, energy on an unfruitful creation. Um, but, but in any case, Vinio uh, uh, rightly sees this as a salvo, uh, a new salvo in the alleged warfare between science and religion, which again <laughs> yeah. t- took flight in the, during the Enlightenment. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it's also a little bit um, dishonest because knowledge of other planets is so recent. Like, how could mythology accrue around planets as we understand them scientifically now? But, like, uh, certainly Christianity and its, its Greek predecessors have, lots, have had lots of ideas about, like, ranks of creation and, you know, the thrones and angels and archangels and all those, those kind of things. Pseudo-Dionysius was really into it. So there was always a sense that there were certainly other intelligent beings and that they were arrayed like physically outward from the earth in the cosmos. So of course it doesn't stack up to what you know once you have a good telescope. But just the <laughs> idea that there's, there's this, you know, hyper earth focused and everything else is void and bare is just ignorant. Well, that's, that's for sure. That's for, uh, you know, Let's just digress on the Ptolemaic cosmos for a minute, the seven-story traditional cosmology in in the West, which was inherited from a Greek astronomer and synthesized with Christian theology um, during the course of Western European history. And let's just point out against Schweitzer and his kind that this, this Ptolemaic universe was not a cozy, human centered world, uh, which was then destabilized by the Copernican discovery of a heliocentric system. In fact, the Ptolemaic seven-story cosmos put humans on the musty earth below, well (laughs) below the stellar gods circulating above in pristine beauty. So, you know, if you were an earthling, you were demoted. You were down on the bottom of the (laughs) ontological hierarchy. There was an underworld below you, but that was the lowest stage, and you were just next to it. If anything, it it was Christian theology in its synthesis with that best available scientific thinking of a thousand or two thousand years ago. It was Christian theology that elevated the status of human beings as God's covenant partner for the care of the creation. And it insinuated a new hierarchy alongside the ontological one, a hierarchy of value, about the love of God above all and all creatures in and under God. Now, if you 
if you're historically fair, classical Christian theology of creation was not anthropocentric in the sense that God cares only about human beings. No, on the contrary, God puts human beings in the middle of the garden to be the caretakers of the earth, his junior partners in the covenant. Right, and which means only human beings are held responsible for messing up. So it is not like a, a simple position of domination, but domination with serious responsibility and serious punishment if you wreck the good things that God has made. Right, right. That much of Torah law is about uh, maintaining that order, that cause, that uh, uh, order of justice and peace and shalom in the creation. Uh, I'll mention here quickly the historian John Headley Brook, whose wonderful book *Science and Religion: Some Historical Perspectives* makes it very clear that you don't have a warfare ever between science and religion. What you have is a warfare, as it were, within science, as new theoretical paradigms challenge existing ones. And um, it's more like you have uh, a battle between one scientific paradigm with its putative religious significance against another scientific paradigm with its putative religious significance. (laughs) So, for example, famous example, Albert Einstein, who resisted the um, quantum mechanics and the Big Bang theory of the universe in favor of the steady state theory. Why? Really? I didn't know that. Yes, he did. He resisted it. His own discovery of relativity paved the way for quantum metaphysics. But Einstein did not like the idea of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and which was at the basis of, of of this new thinking about the origins of the cosmos. And his reason was, why Einstein opposed the Big Bang theory, which is basically that nature has a history, that nature is its history, and nature is not a steady state that just simply is but rather nature is a history with a beginning, and as we'll talk about later, with an end. Einstein's reason was God does not throw dice. That's not exactly a scientific statement now, is it? (laughs) No, it's a theological statement. It's a religious statement. And that's the point. That's the point. So let's, uh, let's just back up a little bit and talk about the discovery of the vast... 14, almost 14 billion year old universe in which our little planet is situated and how that's occurred in the last hundred years or so. Well, yeah. So I think it also is, is hard for us to realize how, how recent so, so many of these discoveries are and how quickly we've had to acclimate. I think we're all used to like the Darwin discovery back in the 1800s and how that's filtered down. But that was not really accompanied with a full understanding of the vastness of the universe or probably the, the tininess of uh, subatomic particles, um, just the, this, this difference in scale from one end of reality to the other is staggering. But I guess in the 1920s, we started having telescopes that were adequate to really see see extremely far. Um, Hubble, you know, the, the famous uh, Hubble telescopes named, named for this astronomer. 
he was able to see even beyond the Milky Way and finally get a good grasp of how many other galaxies were out there. And uh, I guess you can do the math with the calculations and come up with the the rough estimate, as you said, of a universe that is 14 billion years old. Though I always wonder, I'm sure scientists know this, but since year is by definition a planet Earth calculation, I always wonder what does 14 billion years mean? Does it mean like the literal duration of an Earth year? And does that even meaningful at that? Uh, but anyway, that's that's my earthling brain, again, trying to come up with something that I can hang on to. Um, and then, you know, this just simply continues with, you know, more and more discoveries because you can point in every direction of the sky from our planet. And there's just infinite numbers of stars, at least, that you can see. And I guess this comes with all the discoveries also of black holes and red dwarfs and all the other kinds of strange things that are out there. But what's not out there is life, as far as anyone can tell. And um, I guess at some point, the... the um, rich biological discoveries of the way DNA and evolution works on our Earth and then the giganticness of space creates this kind of also scientific shock at, like, why why isn't there more life out there? Yeah, let me tell a little story about that. The first one who raised this question was a, a astrophysicist named Enrico Fermi. Uh, and that's less than 30 years after Hubble's discovery uh, of the galaxies beyond our own Milky Way. And he was working at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, and where he and colleague scientists were enjoying a lunchtime conversation. And they were actually, as someone recalled, laughing about reports of flying saucers and UFOs and so forth. And out of the blue, as others later recalled, Fermi burst out with the question, where is everyone? <laughs> if the universe is this old and this vast, statistically it should be teeming with life, and we should have long since made contact. Where is everyone? That's called the Fermi paradox. Where is everyone? Wow, that sounds so much like um, human beings during lockdown. This <laughs> just terrible <laughs> sense of loneliness. Where is everyone? Wow. Yeah, you know, it's often said that one difference in uh, medieval to modern worldview is that medievals did believe that they were, life was teeming around them. It was invisible. Some of it was scary, like demons, but lots of it was angels and, um, you know, the saints, uh, ancestors. You, right. you had a sense of, of being very much connected to a community you could not see. And one of the um, many side effects of modernity is the sense of, of growing isolation. And that's not only, you know, in our um, tiny apartment buildings and in personal cities, but also that we're not embedded in a, a larger, invisible and um, transplanetary community. I think Fermi was actually pushing the, the question in a somewhat distinct uh, manner from what you just said. I think he was expressing exasperation with the fact that if indeed the universe is this vast and this ancient, there must be intelligent life out there, and it must have had enough time technologically to get to a point where it could communicate with us. 
So why the silence? Why the cosmic silence? I think that's that's what he was really almost anguished about. Um, and let and let me explain. Um, there was another uh, uh, astrophysicist named Frank Drake uh, in 1961 who tried to f- uh, figure out uh, what the variables would be um, involved in uh, producing a a habitat elsewhere in the cosmos for the development of intelligent life. It's called the Drake Equation. And he formulated it in order to organize the astrophysical search for extraterrestrial life. Now, just just wrap your mind around this. This his Drake's equation treats the following variables. The rate at which sun-like stars are born in the Milky Way times the fraction of those stars which host planets, times the fraction of those planets which are habitable, times the fraction of those habitable planets in which life evolves at all, times the fraction of those evolutions of life which produce intelligence, times the fraction of those which advance technologically, and finally times the length or duration of these civilizations. (laughs) <laughs> that's a lot of variables, isn't it? Like, that's and, that's why we have not made contact right there. <laughs> it is a statistically a huge universe, but the 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 deck is stacked against us so tremendously. Now he said that's just within the Milky Way, so presumably you could also extend this equation to all the other galaxies in the universe, but then you have the problem of immense space and time. And it sounds like, I mean, I'm no specialist in astrophysics, but in my understanding, the chances of us biologically making a trip to any planet analogous to our own within our own galaxy is basically nil. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's a very important consideration because it, it kind of, a, puts a pinprick into a balloon of kind of half-baked ideas about space travel that I, I'd like to talk about as we draw towards a conclusion of this. Es- because basically we want to get to the point theologically of what we're saying about this best available science, right? Okay, yeah. So is this related to what I've heard called the anthropic principle of, or simply the sheer extraordinary fact that there is a planet Earth here that is teeming with life, given the fact that that seems to be so shockingly, exceedingly rare as far as we can tell? And that there's, I, I, I guess the idea of this anthropic principle is to deploy the idea that it's so rare that statistics alone cannot account for it. And we should uh, presumably see the hand of God in it. Yeah, uh, yeah. The anthropic principle was actually it's the ancestor of this is Gottfried Leibniz. Uh, yeah, good old Leibniz. Good old Lutheran Leibniz. Theologian. Well, yeah, because he argued that the his argument that this is the best of all possible worlds meant that God surveying the infinity of variables. Now, we just went through the whole list of variables, right? And and (laughs) surveying the infinity of variables shows such a universe. And this tends to be reinforced by contemporary thinking about the Big Bang in which certain physical parameters were established in the first nanoseconds of the Big Bang. And it could have been otherwise. 
And there could be an infinity of universes in which the development of anything like our universe and anything like life in it and anything like intelligent life in it uh, would have been precluded. So, But Leibniz, of course, was saying that God, out of reasons of goodness and wisdom, chose this particular world as opposed to all other possible worlds as metaphysically the best. Now, that does, people misunderstand this and think he thinks, well, that means somehow morally the best, the most convenient, the most happy, all those kinds of things. That's not Leibniz's meaning. Leibniz's meaning is, uh, given the fact that it, the world is a creature, not the creator. That That's a big given. Given the fact that any possible world is creature, not creator, the best of all possible worlds would be this one in which we have, in fact, been given creaturely existence with sufficient capacities to know and love our creator. That was Leibniz's point. Um, uh, and, and that's kind of basically what contemporary people arguing for the anthropic principle, which means the universe was intelligently designed such that uh, human or uh, anthropic human uh, or rather more broadly intelligent life could develop within it. So, okay. yeah, that, that those are the basic ideas here. Uh, we'll come back to Leibniz one because it's interesting that he dealt with already, you know, in the middle of the 17th century, he, he was dealing with the question of extraterrestrials and w what Christians should do if we meet Martians. Uh, well, maybe we can just d digress on that for a moment. Yes, because, Dad, I have to say, all my life since I started reading Luther, I've been dying to make a joke about alien righteousness. <laughs> you know, Luther's thing about, about our own righteousness, our proper righteousness, and alien righteousness. And I'm like, why has nobody ever made a really good Martian joke about alien righteousness? So <laughs> here we go. This is our big opportunity. Leibniz, can you baptize an alien? Well, is the alien righteous? Does it possess its own proper righteousness or alien righteousness? So do aliens have alien righteousness? and alien righteousness i mean it's a it's a rich field so <laughs> well you know <sighs> finally he didn't really leibniz didn't really talk about martians he talked about lunar beings the men lunar, from the okay, moon, sure. moon men, men from the moon <laughs> the man from the moon right and in his uh, time 300 some years ago the debate was whether uh, uh, a moon man should be evangelized and baptized um, and Leibniz records the opinion that, I'm quoting, many would doubtless maintain that the rational animals of these countries, he calls them countries, these other planets, not being of the race of Adam, would have no part in the redemption of Jesus Christ. And I, I, I actually think that's a very wise statement because he's, he's locating um, um, us on planet Earth He's unifying us as the children of Adam and talking about our relationship to the creator of the universe as specific to this locale and this history. Um, and you could say then, well, what about when we actually do meet extraterrestrials? And I think, well, I'm already tipping my hand here. I think it's extremely unlikely that we ever will. But let's go on and make the case for that before I draw that conclusion. 
Well, here, I have to bring in two science fiction examples here that are, are very relevant to this topic. So one is probably familiar to some of our listeners, Paralandra by C.S. Lewis. It's the second in his space trilogy. And um, in the first book, he goes to Mars and discovers uh, three major uh, races of intelligent beings. They look very different from human beings and have some something in common with um animals, but um, also have a, a distinct and kind of weird to us would be off-putting sort of look. But then in the second book, um, the, the hero of the story is taken to Venus, which is, you know, has a very thick atmosphere, so we, we can't see what the surface of the planet looks like. And um, and in the, the story is basically that there is a first couple um, in anthropic form. They look like a, a man and a woman, except that they're green. Um, <laughs> I guess drawing on that classic little green men trope. And um, basically, a, along with the, the hero lands an adversary who basically is trying to corrupt the female into, into the fall. So it, it's Lewis's retelling of the, uh, the temptation in the Garden of Eden story, and I guess making his own corrections to Milton as, as he saw. Uh, fit. But um, what's interesting, uh, two things interesting about Paralandra is one is that they, the hero Ransom learns at the, uh, I think at the end of the book, that the reason why they have a human form, these two first parents of Venus, is because after the incarnation, everything changes. That beforehand, there was a time and a place for these many um, different physical forms for intelligence. But now in honor and respect to the incarnation, all intelligent forms from this time forward will be human-like. But he's very careful. I think this is quite profound to say there's nothing wrong with the forms that came before. And there's actually, in a sense, nothing better with the human forms. It simply is each thing has its own place and time. And lasting forever or being the permanent state of affairs is not a value within God's universe. And and then there's this point where uh, Ransom is is inside of a like a, a deep cave or something and he sees this I guess you'd call it a gigantic millipede and his first reaction is just recoiling with horror because human beings generally hate giant bugs. But then yeah. he somehow is given the gift of seeing it in a new light and seeing well this is just one of God's creatures and why should I hold it against this creature that it looks the way it does? It's just part of the plenitude that as you referred to it earlier. And uh, from that point forward, he never resents any creepy crawly for being a creepy crawly because it's simply part of the reality. And the book ends in this multi-page doxology that I'm sure most uh, readers, at least uh, I did the first uh, several times I read it, kind of skip through because it just seems like long, boring prayers. But it actually is, a, is an exaltation of the of the richness and immenseness of creativity and in the form of life in the universe. And I think, you know, th there's there's things both theologically and scientifically about Lewis that don't quite stay the course, but I think he really was homed in on this feeling, deep feeling of alienation that modern people and scientifically informed people were suffering from and they didn't know how to integrate into faith or science all of this stuff. And I think he's in a lyrical way trying to um, let us take all of these marvelous discoveries of science and really marvel at them and love them and simply let them be what they are instead of having to create a kind of um, uh, ranking um, 
uh, well, he, he was kind of okay with rankings, but not not in the sense in the competitive uh, or before and after sense, but simply that th- this is all part of God's work of creation. But interestingly, uh, although he does prevent the lady from being fatally tempted by the adversary, there is no discussion of baptism or church or sacraments or anything there. It's it's confined to that story. I don't know that he ever got as far to think about bapti- baptizing the, the green people on Venus. Yeah, I, I really like that, and I I, I, I would agree. It kind of connects with what I said earlier about doxology, that one of the deep motives of science and the study of nature is just wonder, amazement, delight um, uh, at the profound in intricacies and diverse and unexpected forms of life uh, th- that just inspire awe and wonder. And you can extend that to the, the non-organic uh, uh, aspects of the vast cosmos. Uh, if you watch uh, uh, the Science Channel or the Discovery Channel, you see these episodes, how the universe works and so forth. And it's really stunning what the astronomers are discovering in, in their reconstructions. It makes me think of that uh, verse from the psalm that God has made Leviathan for the sport of it. <laughs> that the <laughs> yeah, principle yeah. of plentitude is simply that, that God uh, takes delight in experimenting with all sorts of different forms of life. Um, and that out of this vast array of, of, uh, of, of organic and non-organic formations, uh, nevertheless, God deigns to uh, consider this our human race and we earthlings on this lonely little planet in the corner of the universe. What is man that you are mindful of him? That's the psalm verse that comes to my mind. But I, I, I think that it that is maybe a... I, I'm going to say something totally outrageous here. Maybe until the incarnation, God did not realize how vulnerable earthlings feel when they realize how tiny they are in a vast universe. For God, the immense difference from the size of the whole universe to the size of the tiniest subatomic particle is part of the play. For us, it's extremely threatening and terrifying to be so small or so large. <laughs> Pascal voiced that thought that when he considered the vastness of the universe, he was filled with terror. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let me just quickly mention one other science fiction novel uh, relevant to this. It's called The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell. And it's basically, uh, the idea is that the SETI project, which is like always scanning um, space static noise for um, pattern signals, basically it succeeds, they make contact, a group of people are sent and, you know, they just fudges over (laughs) the difficulties of that. They end up on the other planet and um, there are a number of characters. One of them is a Catholic priest who is going um, to be the first missionary uh, very much explicitly on on the model of the um, of uh, European priests going to North America. They they go to this other planet and it's just one devastating event after the other. It was one of the most upsetting books I've ever read. It actually like prompted a crisis of faith for me. It was so terrible. Like just all the things that go wrong, the the brutality, the misunderstandings, the horrors. And uh, the book is told kind of back and forth with the action on the planet. And then the priest is the only one who makes it back. And the, he's trying to, through the trauma, tell the story of 
of what he has been through. And so it's definitely not at all a, a rosy, happy, yay, we finally made friends with intelligent life on another planet, but just one series of horrors after another, um, which frankly seems to me, given humans track record with each other far more likely than, than the happy rosy version of of making yeah. friends across the planets and maybe that is why we're so isolated if we are um, indeed deeply sinful then uh, it stands to reason other intelligent life might be deeply sinful maybe it's better to keep us far away from each other. I am told that there is a sequel to this devastating book that starts to patch up some of the damage. Uh, I would not recommend anyone to read it unless they feel of extremely robust um, mind, heart, soul, and faith. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's it's as much a real possibility if, if there is going to be an encounter as the, the beautiful um, rejoicing and plenitude that Lewis so wonderfully depicts in Paralandra. And I think right. it's not a bad idea to keep that caution in mind. Yeah, I, uh, well, well said. I, and I, well, I'd like to actually, now as we're, we need to start focusing on a conclusion here, I think, um, Sarah, that um, what are some of the problems with our contemporary uh, discoveries uh, in this regard from a theological point of view? I think one of the things that the science is teaching us is what is this concept of evolutionary filters, uh, which again harkens back to the Drake equation. There's such an intricate, const intricate constellation of factors that we can rightly regard to be relatively rare in the vast universe that would lead to a habitable um, uh, uh, a habitat suitable for intelligent life, as far as we can tell. Now just think about this. Not only a rocky planet in the so-called habitable zone of a relatively unusual, suitable sun, such a planet would also have to retain liquid water and an atmosphere protected from solar radiation by the existence of a magnetic zone, which is the iron core of the rocky planet. And the, it's the absence of that which turned ancient Mars into a frigid desert. And to boot, with, without a, a moon to work tidal action in the, in the waves, in the water, the laboratory to incubate life would be lacking. So, while statistically there should be little doubt in the probability of the evolution of life forms elsewhere in the universe, habitat suitable uh, for the intelligent of evolution of intelligent life as we know it or the hosting of sustainable earthly life to colonize uh, such a planet appears to be relatively rare and then just quickly back to the fermi question where is everybody you mentioned lewis's idea that the gift of life is temporary is temporal that life comes into it has the universe has a beginning and the universe will have an end planet earth has a beginning planet earth will have an end and within that intelligent life had a beginning and it may also have an end uh, one of the darker speculations is that intelligent life evolves to a level very near to where we have evolved 
with its technological capacity that it can destroy itself, that it goes extinct through like a nuclear war or something like that. So where is everybody? Well, maybe all those previous civilizations have extinguished themselves. So when you take these thoughts into consideration and ask the question about shouldn't we be exploring an exoplanet so that we can migrate out of ruined planet Earth, you know, I simply say theologically this is an escapist fantasy, and it's an ethically (laughs) ambiguous one too. As you were suggesting, are we to infect pristine planets with our unredeemed human nature? Um, I, I have heard intelligent people, uh, not that I know personally, but, you know, heard uh, podcasts or conversations, interviews with people who are like seriously thinking about this. <laughs> um, partly, I'm, I, I'm, these seem to be people who are really into space and know nothing about evolutionary biology. There's just, <laughs> it just seems like an absolute non-starter. And I think in this respect, again, uh, early science fiction funnily enough, had the last word early on in H.G. Wells' famous War of the Worlds. Yes, most people know this because of the urban myth that when Orson Welles did a production of War of the Worlds, people thought it was real and panicked. Apparently, that is greatly exaggerated. People knew perfectly (laughs) well um, they were not being invaded. But um, War of the Worlds, there have been many productions of it and movies of it. And the problem is it fails as a good, exciting story because the way it ends is actually exactly the way it has to end. Wells got this, which is that all of a sudden these terrifying invaders from Mars are arrested dead in their tracks and die because they have no inoculation against Earth microbes. (laughs) And just like that, they are taken out and the whole battle is over. It is not an exciting ending if you're used to like big shoot 'em out scenes, you know, of this kind. But I remember the first time I read it, um, I was just stunned and I was like, well, that's exactly it. It's actually our microbes are our birthright. They are what tell us we have a right to be here. We have more microbial cells that are not us than are us contained in our body. They're way smaller than our our bodily, you know, our, our own proper DNA body cells are. But they, they make it possible for us to live on this planet, which means it isn't possible for us to live on any planet that doesn't supply us readily with all the microbes of, all, of the enormous variety that we we need, nor can anything from outside function on our planet. And I just think that's that's a very weird affirmation of the fact that this is our planet. We belong here. We do not belong elsewhere. And um, just as well that we can't easily get anywhere else because it would go down pretty badly anyway, just in a purely biological sense. Yeah, very good, Sarah. I, I, I quite agree. And I think this is pointing to what I mentioned earlier, why I think it's exceedingly unlikely that we will actually have an encounter with extraterrestrials. Um, Just think about that for a minute. As earthlings, we need oxygen to breathe, water to hydrate, agriculture for nourishment, co-humanity for bodily aid and psychic social sanity. And none of these earthling needs can be easily satisfied in space travel. Even were such obstacles technologically to be overcome, The problem of interstellar travel, not to mention intergalactic travel, represents a seemingly insurmountable obstacle. 
Earthlings would have to survive zero gravity for uh, incredibly long periods, bombardment by cosmic radiation and debris for unimaginably long durations. Traveling at the speed of light, it would take at least four years to reach even the closest neighbor star. Now, traveling at the speed of Which light... Which we're not going to do. <laughs> yeah, maybe someday in 10,000 years if we don't destroy ourselves in the meantime. So what these reflections should drive home, and we are talking here about the best available science uh, and what it's learned about the universe, is how rare and precious our human life on this good earth is and how urgent our spiritual struggle to be at home on the earth and to be at peace with one another. I think that's that would be the huge takeaway from an honest consideration of the science. You know, again, another little science fiction example to to back that up. There's a movie that came out in 2016 called Passengers, and the basic premise is a um, a, a ship transporting people who have decided to move to another habitable planet. Um, you know, and they go voluntarily, but it's 120 uh, years away. So of course they go. They are you know put into to deep sleep. The whole thing is on automatic, and everybody will be woken up three months before they arrive at the planet, which is 120 years away. And of course, what happens is one person wakes up too soon, and he is the only person awake and moving about on this ship, and how he tries really hard to hold it together, and finally cannot overcome the temptation to wake up one of the other passengers, um, a woman. And um, he does not tell her that he has woken her up. They just assume that she has accidentally woken up like him, and of course they fall in love, and then eventually, through various means, she finds out that, that he woke her up and and all that. But the basic idea is that they end up being the only two people. They're like an Adam and Eve living alone on the ship and they live their lives out and um, and then they die on the ship. And presumably when the ship arrives, it, it finds, finds them and figures out what has happened. But I have never seen such a chilling depiction of the vastness and loneliness of space and mm. what it would take. And, you know, it, the idea that even the what it shows like you know these you know obviously um, CGI shots of the ship going through space, but I was like, what is the chance of a ship making it 120 years without you know crashing into any space junk you know or right, or yeah. nothing going wrong in a machine a machine self monitored for 120 years? It's just it's it's it was. Um, it was a very powerful depiction of just how far away everything is and how desperately lonely it is and how we are just not at all meant to do that. And, you know, on the flip side, you know, like in something like Star Wars, it's so easy to get from place to place. It doesn't take any amount of time. And um, even in Ursula Le Guin, she's more famous for her fantasy, but she also wrote some science fiction novels. Interestingly, um, the premise is that um, humanity has been seated on lots of planets, and the the relationality between them is called the ecumen, as in ecumenical, which is funny because she was no no fan of Christianity, but she drew on that word, and. Um, 
So she has various stories set on on various planets and and, and explores in in a more classic cultural anthropology way the interrelatedness here. But one of the most insightful, critical essays I ever heard about her, read about her science fiction, was that she renders space unalienating. She makes it possible to have this kind of communal and connected sense between planets. And of course, you know, that that was a an, an artistic choice, but scientifically speaking, it's a deceptive one. Space feels like home in her science fiction. And the fact is, space is not our home. And the Passengers movie shows that far more powerfully and, and truthfully, I'm afraid. Right. And again, none of this should be taken as any kind of negativity towards uh, the exploration of the universe and and uh, so forth. Uh, but it does call into question some of the more fantastic ideas about escaping a ruined planet Earth uh, in order to find a new world for us to corrupt and, and pollute. We have to reform ourselves, and that wouldn't be the task of preventing human self-extinction through war or, um, uh, or ecological disaster or whatever, you know, uh, before we're even fit to think about dwelling on an, on, a, on another planet. Um, we are, uh, this is what I would like to say theologically, we are Adam. That Hebrew word, we've, we've turned it into a proper name for the first human in the second creation account in Genesis 2 and 3. But the word Adam derives from the Hebrew word for earth, Adama. So a more literal translation, which would capture the play on words, would call him not Adam, but Earthman or Earthling. It's on account of a lust for domination to disown his own earthly vulnerabilities. He succumbs to the serpent's deceptive promise, you will be as God. Adam would not be at home on the earth nor be loyal to his partner in crime, mother of us all, otherwise known as Eve, even when the earth was a natural paradise. So we have this fundamental human alienation from our earthliness, uh, which is expressed in our, our, our sexual differentiation as male and female. And uh, that's, what, that's what we need, I think, and the Christian theological tradition would have us focus on is our our alienation from our own earthliness. That's why the Lord says to the guilty couple, you are dust, you are earth. From earth you were taken, and to earth you will return. And this is spoken to us every Ash Wednesday. Hmm. So, in a sense, if you're looking for aliens, look in the mirror. <laughs> At the alienated. Yes, that's exactly right. Now, I want to conclude, Sarah, by posing a, a question that we can't answer in this podcast, but I think it's really uh, provocative and interesting. According to contemporary astrophysical science, the universe that we know it, which had a birth in the Big Bang 14 some, almost 14 billion years ago, will eventually die maybe 100 billion years from now, but eventually it's going to run out of energy. It's going to simply dissipate. The lights will go out and everything will be cold and dark. 
the universe had a birth and the universe will have a death. Theological question. Can God survive the death of the universe? <laughs> no, it's a, it actually, I, I knew a young theologian years ago under the influence of Ponenberg. Ponenberg, of course, acknowledges bluntly that for Ponenberg, the, the future of the world that God promises is not compatible with contemporary scientific thinking about the death of the universe eons from now. And Mark Worthing, uh, this theologian, I think he teaches in Australia now, in his book, uh, asked the question, can God survive the heat death of the universe? And more recently, my former colleague at Roanoke College, Ned Wisniewski, has written a little book with the title, Can God Fail? And it's along the same lines. So do you want me to answer this? Well, your thoughts would be interesting on this point. I have some more to say about this, but go ahead. Well, so one thing is, is uh, the question is whether God's existence depends on ours and whether there's a difference between creator and creature and if God is within the system or outside the system. So on just, I guess, on the ontological level, I would assert God is outside the system of creation, though free to enter the system of creation and not dependent on the system of creation. So in that sense, sure, no problem. Um, now, God might have other problems or objections to his universe winding down and being cold, dust, and ashes, but that's a separate thing. Um, another is that I um, uh, I think Alan Padgett, doesn't he do science and theology at Luther Seminary? Yeah, that's that right. right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I heard him um, interviewed, and he said, as far as he's concerned, there's no real obstacle between protological science and um and and uh, Christian faith, um, the the and that's what people always get fixated on is Big Bang versus steady state or evolution versus creation. He says no 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 none of that's a problem. The problem is what's going to happen at the far end, <laughs> and that's right. all. Like you said, all all we see, all, all the signs pointing within the system towards the end of the universe are not compatible with the eschatology that we proclaim and believe. And so in that respect, God is going to have to step in and do something. It seems to me that the scriptural expectation, though again, not functioning remotely scientifically, is assuming that at some point God has to step in and prevent the system of creation from continuing down its course, and there will be some sort of radical rupture for the, what we call the end times, the the last day, the beginning of the new life, whatever. There is some kind of real incision or alteration. Um, so maybe, as you would like to say, Dad, that is when uh, salvation history and creation history are both interrupted by a massive apocalypse. But it is not <laughs> one that is predictable from within the system that we're in right now. Well, certainly, I, I would think that would be the only possible way to go that you're describing. But I, w I would like to push the analysis in a little bit different direction, uh, which would have to be do with uh, the Gospel of John's deliteralization of the naive chiliasm, as we talked about in the previous episodes uh, of uh, the book of Luke and Acts uh, that we talked about in, in Kinzer's um, discussion of, of the land of Israel. Um, I think uh, the point that I take from this death of the universe, according to the best available science, is that creation itself is a temporal gift. It is the gift of time. 
and a gift of time means a gift of a beginning with an end. And the promised redemption is not the infinite extension of, of chronological time. It's the promised redemption and fulfillment of chronological time by incorporation into God's own eternal life. And that is a life, as you said, which is outside of the system, which transcends the time-space creation. And I, I think that's important to say because there's no resurrection without first a death, a personal but also a cosmic death. Um, and um, I think that, you know, genuine transcendence uh, does not mean that when we say God is outside of the system or not dependent upon the system, that can lead to a false infinite in which we imagine that God is somewhere else, just a way, you know, somehow separated from us. But the transcendence of God is his omniability to be a present closer to us than we are to ourselves. That's the genuine transcendence. God is not limited by time and space but can actually be uh, activating uh, uh, in every nanosecond of time and space, in every place of time and space. So transcendence should not be taken to mean that because God is, as it were, outside of the system or as creator other than creation, that God is somehow separated, but rather that God is actively and deliberately and intentionally present to all time and space. Nevertheless, that means that we are not God. <laughs> and that <laughs> yeah. as we as creatures, we will die. And the urgent question for us earthlings is whether we can gracefully accept our finitude and live in hope in its redemption and fulfillment by a power beyond our own thoroughly temporal selves. And that would be the kind of if, if I can put it this way, the metaphysical insight that's necessary for us to say earth and life on it is a rare and precious gift. It's what we have. It's ours for the foreseeable future, provided we can be at home on the earth and at peace with one another and, and uh, prevent there, thereby the extinction of life that perhaps has occurred in other in samples of intelligent life in the universe. Hmm. So no, no escaping this earth, but also no escaping death and coming to terms with the limitations in a graceful way because we are surrounded by the graciousness of God, both as creator and redeemer of all that has been created. That's right. And that fulfillment is not some utopia that we can build on earth. Fulfillment is reconciliation with the earth, with one another. Reconciliation is a very dynamic concept. It, it means that there really has been an enmity and an alienation, uh, which must be honestly and truthfully faced and then courageously uh, overcome with love. Okay. Yeah, that's beautiful. But I have to admit, if centipedes come into my house, I'm still going to kill them. I'm fine with them existing in their own proper habitat, but they are not allowed into mine. And I will just freely murder. Um, I will not be reconciled unto them. <laughs> right. Yeah, I have the same attitude towards copperheads in my yard. Yep. 
Uh, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Well, I mean, and that, that would actually take us in a whole different direction is, is how to think theologically about the competitive nature of life within a system, which is a real thing. It's not the only thing, but it is certainly a real thing. And, uh, but maybe we'll save that for another time. Well, I think this has been a great three, three part series here, the land of Israel, the earth and the earth in the context of the universe. So I'm uh, real happy we did this. Yeah, me too. But there's one more place to go, which we have been hinting at at the end here, which is heaven, hell, and the life to come. So that's what we'll be talking about next time in our final episode of season four of Queen of the Sciences. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.